It's the Dear Black Folks Podcast with your host, Earl Markham. And LaToya Broaders, a.k.a. The Ballhead Truth. Hey, Toya, how you doing today? Hey, E, how are you today? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. I'm excited about who we have today. Yes, yes, yes. I'm excited, too. I've been looking forward to this all day. Yeah, I've been looking forward to it for a year. <laughs> <laughs> So let me let me explain to you all, all the listening audience out there today. We have an icon in Black history. Some of you who may not know you, you may not know his name, but but you would definitely know the image. Bronze medal winner from the 1968 Olympics in Mexico City, Mr. John Carlos. It's a it's a great honor, man, to share some time with you. Yes, it is, it is my it's our honor to be able to to sit here and talk with you too. So let's get let's get started. Um, where were you uh, born and raised at, Mr. Carlos? I was born and raised in Harlem, New York, Lenox Avenue. And I always like to use the, the framework and say I was born and raised between the two most famous nightclubs on planet Earth at that particular time, which was the Savoy Ballroom and the Cotton Club. Well, I've heard about that a lot. All the big band, all the jazz singers, you know, Billy Holiday's, Sarah Vaughn's, and and elephants, Gerald's. I used to lay in my bed and listen to them every night. And so, you used to you used to also perform out in front of there sometimes. Um, oh yeah, well that was our that was our hustling pastime yeah. because uh, we realized early that a lot of white folks that lived in Harlem at that particular time went on a hiatus. They all vacated. So what they did, they would come from downtown to come up into Harlem to stop at the Savoy. So they would come in their cabs. We would open the cabs, help them out the cabs. That was our hustle. And then we would have our little congas and we would be singing our little songs, My Bonnie Lies Over the Ocean and so forth like that. Uh, and had an opportunity to meet and greet a lot of people. Such as Fred Astaire. Uh, you know, yeah, Fred Astaire was uh, very personable. He would always take some time with us check us out, check out a little dance out, a little playing the congas and so forth. And he would always flip us a silver dollar. And that was my role because I couldn't dance. I couldn't sing. I couldn't play the congas, but I could hustle. So I would be the one to go hustle the money. So when he would flip that silver dollar, and one day he asked us, he said, uh, hey, young fella, you know why I give you guys a silver dollar every time I come here? And I said, no, sir. He said, I give you good guys a silver dollar because you give a great show for the money. That one phrase or statement stayed in my mind from that day to the day, give a good show for the money. So whatever I did in terms of me being in, in, in a public image, whether it be in sports or education, or what have you, I'm going to always give them a good show for their money. I'm going to give them something to think about after I'm gone. <laughs> I heard that. So what was some, what, what was like maybe your fondest memory of, of being out in, in in between those two clubs? You got like a a favorite story you could tell us about a, a celebrity from back then? Well, you know, it, it, all the celebrities, man, was just regular people. You know, they, they, they saw us as kids. We saw them as, as the stars. But one thing I, re, I remember at the Savoy Ballroom, around Christmas time, they would have this Christmas party every year. And they had two requirements. One for the girls, they had to have a dress on. The other requirement for the boys, they had to have a tie on. 
Well, we didn't like wearing no ties, and most of us didn't have ties anyway. But we would go into the Savoy ballroom and, and take the tie. As soon as we got in, go straight to the bathroom. Throw it out the window to the next guy. <laughs> Put that tie on. He come on. By the time they realized we were going, ain't nobody in the side had a tie on. <laughs> everybody had a tie on. But that's the way we had to work at a very young age. And, and, and it kind of made me think that a lot of guys on the block had the Amos and Andy flavor about it. We just going to make the situation into a good situation for us. Okay. That's cool. Hey, Mr. Carlos, um, I noticed um, I've read your book and um, well, listen to your book on Audible. And um, I also I remember you saying in the book that um, part of growing up in Harlem is that you didn't really realize like it was a black white issue because it was like a salt and pepper type of deal there. Right. It was like a salad bowl. Right. Yeah. Uh, I mean, we had everyone who lived in the community. I mean, we had blacks, we had, you know, Puerto Ricans, we had uh, Jamaicans, we had Italians, Irish. Everybody was there, Jews, everybody was there. If you didn't live there, you worked there. Uh, we didn't have a whole bunch of black law enforcement. Uh, we had two black detectives, Mr. Lester, Mr. Lester, Mr. Bryan, which influenced my life down the line. Uh, but we had many Italian cops not Italian cops, but Irish cops that would be in the community. And what I try to make a lot of people understand that we had a lot better understanding with the police today, I mean, at that day than they have today. And it's based on the fact is that they spent more time with us as young black kids than they did with their own kids at home. So, you know, association brings along assimilation. You know, so we would talk, uh, I remember the first involvement I had with the police, uh, a cop tell us to get off the stoop. Get off the stoop. When I go around the corner and come back, you better be gone. You go around the corner and come back, and they would always use this metaphor. Hey, kid, what do you want, a boot in your ass? Did you hear what I said? Move on, move on. And, and I would tell them, say, man, I'm not going anywhere. I live here. See, when I tell you you're going to move, you can going to say, no, I'm not moving. I'm not going anywhere. And my father had the shoe shop right there on 626. My father was a cobbler, a shoemaker. 626 Lennox Avenue. We had shoe shop up front, the candy store in the back, and then our apartment in the back of that. So when he started talking all kind of police talk intimidation, I told him, I said, man, I'm not going anywhere. I said, and as a matter of fact, you act more like the kid, and I act more like the adult. When I said that to the man, like it kind of like sent him in the shock, because I guess he ain't never heard no kid tell him that. <laughs> when I said that to him right away, he going to tell him, where's your father? I guess he want to go speak my father out for me being so forward. My father got through talking to him. After a while, they started breaking bread together at lunchtime. The guy would go sit there at lunchtime with my father and they would talk it up. And then we became friends. But that's the difference in law enforcement of yesterday opposed to law enforcement of today. They don't have beat cops to meet the people in the community. You understand? That's what it was protecting serve. Now what they have is police units where they have police cars and they get around, they drive and they're making sure that you stay in your zone. What are you doing in Beverly Hills? Uh, what are you doing in Stone Mountain? Or what are you doing in, in this area opposed to the other areas? Because they don't have any association with us. All they're doing is riding around to make sure that we stay in the zones that they want us to stay in. Right. So with that and being that you grew up, you said it was salt and pepper there and then you ended up becoming an icon in the civil rights movement. When did you first... What would you say was your first experience with racism when you realized 
racism existed? <laughs> I mean, I was uh, very early in my life. I heard, about, I was, a, let me start by saying, I was the best bathtub swimmer in Harlem. I used to love underwater the whole nine yards. So then as I got older, I used to go over to the Harlem River and swim. And this day, I must have been, I don't know, maybe 12 years old, 11 years old. And I heard about this, this uh, woman swimming the English Channel. I didn't know what the English Channel was, but I knew the fact that she wanted to be this swimmer. And I'm a swimmer. Daddy, what's the English Channel? Well, Pop, did she get a trophy? Did she get money? Did she get her name in the paper? Why is she swimming in this channel? And then I asked my father a couple of questions where he realized that I was very serious when I was questioning him. And the last two questions was, well, Daddy, does she swim with a knife in her mouth? <laughs> uh, Daddy, how does she go to the bathroom when she needs to go to the bathroom? You know, because I don't know if they let her out the water. You swim, you swim until you get there. Uh, and he asked me, so, well, son, why was she having a knife in her mouth? And I said, well, when they, don't they have sharks in the water? And I'm, I'm young in my mind. So he said, well, son, you know, I swim just like a rock. I'm going to go and check it out. He said, when I find out, I'll bring it back to you. But in the meantime, while he went to check that out, took him some time. But before he can get back, they were talking about the Olympic Games. Daddy, what's the Olympic Games? And my father, I'll never forget, he said, son, he said, that's when the nations of the world come together to see who's the best of mind and physical, physical, physical fitness. And I said to him, I said, oh, the best? And I said to him, I said, daddy, did they have swimming in, in, in the Olympics? He said, yes, son. I said, they ever had a black swimmer to represent America? And he said, no. And when he said no, I said, why? And just as I said, why? He began to put his arm out. And when he put his arm out, he started rubbing on the arm. And when he did that, I didn't put two and two together. <laughs> I'm thinking that he got a bug bite. He's rubbing a bug bite. But he was telling me, he said, nah, son, you could never go to the Olympics as a swimmer merely because of the color of your skin. That's the first time that I had any idea that we had a race problem. Let's say that I took note to. Okay, so then I remember from there, I'd gone to, uh, they used to have man-made beaches in, in New York. And I had an uncle, my Uncle Luther. He was about 7'4". He looked like a white man. He looked like Adam Clayton Powell. Uh, and we had gone to this beach, this man-made beach, and I was running around as a little boy, hook sliding. And, and this came back to mind after I had the experience about the Olympics when my father was telling me. And I was running around in there, and I did a hook slide. And the guy was laying there, and he was putting uh, lotion on his girlfriend or his wife's back. And when I hook slide, the sand got on him. And he jumped up, and he screamed, who let that little nigga in here? I mean, the way he said it was so foul and so vulgar, the way he said it, it scared me. And I ran to my uncle, and I told my son, look at that man over there. He's cussing at me. And he told me, he said, what did he call you? And I didn't know what word was, nigga. I said, he said, they called me a nigga. And he said, what? And I never forget my uncle getting up off that doggone blanket. He got up and he ran over and he, he said, That's, is that him? Pull him out, is that him? I said, yeah. And he reached down there and grabbed the guy by his neck and raised him up out the thing in his neck. 
and he shook him and he told me, say, you call a little black boy a nigga? He said, that's my family. You calling me a nigga? And he threw the dude back down the road and, on the blanket and he told me, say, when I turn my head and look back, you better be gone. And all I remember is that man just taking heed to what he said because he grabbing his woman, just grabbing up my arms to go. Uh, so those are my early instances of race relations. Okay. Now, relative to me having involvement with race relations, there's always been a higher power in my mind. You know, I've talked to a lot of people walking up down the street, but most of them don't give me the answers or the voice, the information to fill these voids that was in my mind. And I started going to church, not for religion, but for that higher power to get a better understanding. And I went to this church called Abyssinia Baptist Church, and it was the church of Adam Clayton Powell. And I remember when I went there the first time, I'm looking and looking. I said, this is pretty nice. Uh, and I went back home and I told my, my brother and my father, I said, Daddy, I found this church. Let's go. So we finally got together and said, okay, we'll go. So we went. And by the third time we was there, Adam Clayton Powell Sr. says, I'm not feeling well today. I'm going to let my son preach the sermon. Daddy, who's his son? And he's telling me, he said, there he is over there. And I, when I looked to the right, he pointed, it was three black guys over there. Or three people, I should say. And I said, which one's his son? He said, when they help him put the robe on. I said, no, Daddy, that's not his son. He said, what do you mean? I said, that's not his son. He said, why is that his son? I said, that's a white man over there. He said, no, that's his son. No, daddy, that's not his son. It can't be his son. Because Adam Clayton Paul Senior looked like my father. So then he says to me, he said, no, that's his son. He's not passing. Now, from this to now, he's not passing. Passing what, Pop? He's not passing as... A white man. So I said to my father right then, I said, Daddy, are you telling me that black people are ashamed of being black? He said, no, nah, son, I'm not telling you that black people are ashamed of being black. He said, but I'll tell you that black people are dissatisfied with the fact that merely because of the color of their skin, they can't have a decent life. They can't have things for their kids or for their wives or live where they want to live based on the color of their skin. So if some of them feel that they can cross over, if they had that opportunity to cross over, into the white world and no one know but them. Some of them will take that opportunity. He said, this man here, he's not trying to pass. He's proud of who he is and he's going to stand it out. And I watched Adam Clayton Powell's career from the time I was a little boy going to that church in terms of the fact that he stood strong for black people. And he's always used that metaphor, keep the faith. And just to think about how the white politicians, the white businesses, all of them stack the cards against him to try and embarrass him or degrade him or tarnish his reputation and run him out of the United States Congress. I think eventually he had to move to the Bahamas or somewhere to live the rest of his life out. Wow. So, you know, I mean, I got, I got a full gamma on racism uh, in school. Uh, I used to always say it looks like they send the dumbest white teachers that just passed the C-Best test to, to go into the, the hood to teach the black and brown kids. And then if you tried and challenged them on anything, most of the time they was a big dude, and then they want to get physical. Yeah. So, you know, you, you, things that you have to evaluate for yourself. 
because everybody at that age didn't understand what was going on. When you were growing up, you had a problem with uh, dyslexia? Yes. You yes. Well, yes. so, and you say dyslexia, you know, when I was a kid, it wasn't anything called dyslexia. It was called this dummy. Mm. Because if you went into a classroom and if a kid wasn't the smartest kid in the class and he might have been trying to show out because he had this hang up about he can't spell the word or he can't read the word, then the teacher would say, all right, sit on that stool and they would have a, like a high stool and would sit you on the stool and make you wear a, a pointed hat. And on the center of the pointed hat, it would have dummy written down down to your brow. Oh, wow. In the hat. So it wasn't no dyslexia. It was just that you just dumb. Oh, Period. wow. That's horrible. Boy, they, they, <clears throat> they wouldn't be able to survive the day they, 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 they got everybody. So uh, everything you do is you get in trouble for it. Well, they would get thrown under the jail for doing that to kids today. Well, you know, at the same time, man, they might get thrown under jail for doing something like that. But if you sit back and think, man, in the last 200 years, man, they ain't changed the methodology in terms of how they teach us. No, at all. I, 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 I mean, to teach the modern day kid like you taught somebody 100 years ago, how are you going to reach some kids? Right. And then tell them, say, yeah, well, we're going to teach you about history, but they don't teach you about the history of your, your nation of Africa. Right. They're going to teach you about uh, ethnicity. They don't teach you anything about your ethnic group. Understand? It teaches a bunch of lies. Well, everything they, everything they said was all premeditated. This is what we're gonna give them. Right. Okay. See, it's 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 certain things that in a dictionary we look at, and they tell us, say, you know, out of the dictionary, it's two things, man, is for sure. And I said, what's that? And they said, well, death and taxes. And I told them, I said, no, nah, man, it's only one thing out of the dictionary. That is for sure. And that's death. I say everything else, take taxes away and put in place of taxes, put up their choice. Because every man, woman, and child has a choice if we realize that we have that choice. With taxes, you don't have to pay taxes. You can get away for better than three quarters of your life and not pay taxes. But you have that choice to say, I'm not going to pay. And at the end of that time, they can come back and say, well, this is the repercussion of you not paying your taxes. But you had a choice to pay it or not to pay it. When God call you about the death thing, ain't no choice. When it's time to go, you call it. Right, okay? exactly. So we don't, we don't use that word or we don't focus on that word choice. And if we don't focus on it, how do we let our kids know that they have a choice? And, man, you have a choice to go to school to get your education, or you have a choice to go to the public library and get your education. Only difference with the public library, you have to have discipline to go with choice. Yeah. Because there ain't nobody making you go to class. Nobody making you go research this. It's on you to go research it. I said, but relative to you saying you don't like school, you don't have to go to school, but you have to pass that test. Why do you have to pass the test? Because the way they constructed society here, they set a game plan. And so many of us as black people fall through the game plan. We fall through the cracks because we don't realize why we go through the process of education. We don't understand the value of education. Wow. 
Oh, you can't get past A because you don't qualify. You don't even have a degree in your back pocket. You need a high school diploma in your back pocket. I tell them it's better to get it and not need it than to need it and not have it. And my, right. grand, my grandmother used to tell me that all the time. That's right. All the time. So let me ask you this, just backing up a little bit. So you said you, you as a kid you liked swimming. So how did you get into track and field? Well, I got into track and field based on this guy named Robin Hood. You ever heard of a guy named Robin Hood? Yes. Robin Hood was a guy that came on a little fishbowl TV uh, that I was impressed with. Why was I impressed with him? Because what I saw through the, the, the little series that they had on Robin Hood, that Robin Hood wasn't concerned about man. He wasn't concerned about the sheriff of Nottingham. He wasn't concerned about the king of Nottingham. He was concerned about fair play. So in, in terms of fair play, he's concerned about humanity. They're pillaging the people. The same way when you sit back and read the Bible, it said Jesus went to the marketplace. Why did he go to the marketplace? Not to buy something. He went through there and upset the apricot because they was pillaging the people. The same people Robin Hood was upset about. Okay? So when I saw Robin Hood take the initiative to tell the king and the sheriff, if you and your people come through this park, this forest of Nottingham, this is my turf. You come through here, I don't care who you are, you're going to pay a tariff coming through here. So in other words, he was saying, man, I'm not concerned about your law as man as much as I'm concerned about the higher power, the power of the universe, that law. So when I saw that, and I used to go around to my buddy's house, and like I say, at that time I was blessed because I had a mother and father in my household. When Heron came into the neighborhood in the early 40s, you sit back and you think to yourself, man, they didn't have no whole bunch of activity going on when the black men went to the drugs. Then why did they go to the drugs? They went to drugs because of escapism. When I say escapism, you have to get into, well, what do you mean escapism? What are they trying to escape from? They're trying to escape from themselves. Yes. You know, one thing... I, I noticed that I remember you said um, in the book, you were saying that um, when they were, they used that as like an outlet. They had the the drinkable PCP called King Kong. King Kong, right. Yeah. And you said that they would, people started using drugs to, because they were like, try to escape from their reality of, of being. Well, that's, well, you see, first when they would take the King Kong, King Kong was like PCP, like hallucinative. They drink that man every weekend. One or two of them fly off the roof. But when King Kong came in, King Kong came in like this. All of a sudden, all of King Kong dissipated. When King Kong dissipated, this thing called Heron came up. When Heron came up, you know, imagine you, Earl, you got two kids, happily married, well, as happy as you could be. Right. But then you don't have no decent job. Instead, you go out, you look for a job, you can't find one. You look again, you can't find one. And then your wife says, well, baby, I'm going to go out and I'm going to try and find a job. So she go out and finds a job. She's bringing home more money than you. You still love your wife, but you're still having a hard thing to make her understand why you can't get a job. She's thinking that for so long, you want no job because you ain't getting no job. So then that's running through your brain. And now all of a sudden, man, your daughter comes up to you and says, Daddy, 
my birthday's next week. You told me you were going to buy me that dress for my birthday. Because at that time, in the 50s and 40s, little girl, if she got a dress, that's like, oh, hitting the lotto, big time. Daddy, you going to be able to buy me that dress for my birthday? Yeah, baby, I'm going to get you that dress. She's so happy, he walks down the hall, he put his hand in his pocket, man, he pulls up nothing but hoes. Before he could digest that, his kid son come and says to him, say, Pop, my PE teacher told me if I don't get some sneakers and some shorts and a T-shirt, I'm a fail PE. I got to get those sneakers tomorrow, Pop. Are you going to be able to get them for me? Yes, son, I'm going to get you the sneakers. He walked down the hall, put his hand in his other pocket. He got bigger hoes. Is that part, now, is, is that part of why I, um, I, when you say about the Robin Hood thing, um, I remember you saying like uh, one of the part, like when you found out you were really fast because you used to steal things from from the shipyards or uh, from the containers. Freight yards. Yes, and then you used to run with the 50-pound boxes on your shoulders. On your shoulders, right? Yes. Or on the arms. Right. Right. And you well, used to outrun everybody. <laughs> yeah, well, I was getting into that. Oh, but what I'm saying right. is... I want, I want you to finish because you... Well, what you yeah. were saying because that yeah. was that. Okay. Uh, so what I was saying was, now your wife comes to you and your wife says... Say, baby, you know, we've been married 15 years. You know, our anniversary is tomorrow. What are we going to do? Hey, man, and you saying, I can't even get my wife a rose. Our anniversary is tomorrow. I can't even get her a rose. Now, you've been going to the mirror every day of your life. When you get up in the morning, wash your face, do the whole nine yards. This particular morning, you get up and you go to the mirror. For the first time in your life, you look and see yourself in the mirror. Any other time, we don't look at ourselves in the mirror. The mirror is to be a reflection, but we never reflected on who that person was in the mirror. Now I find that I don't like the person I'm seeing in that mirror. And when a junkie told me that, it blew me away. I mean, what do you mean you don't like? That's you. How you don't like yourself? And he asked me, he said to me, he said, John, you ever have a girlfriend? I said, yeah, man, I got two, three girlfriends. <laughs> he said, you know, I had a girl, man. I fell in love with her. But it took me three years to even approach her to ask her to be my girlfriend. And then when I found out that she was liking me as much as I was liking her, it took me another three years to get the courage to ask her to marry me. And she said, yeah. And when she said, yeah, he said, John, I was the highest level in life. I was the happiest man on the planet. I'm going to be the best father. I'm going to be the best provider. I'm going to be the best husband. I'm going to do everything right. And now you can't get a job. And now your wife thinks you're less than a man because you don't have a job. You don't get a job because they want to pay you far less than what you work for the job. Now you don't like what you see in that mirror. And then somebody comes up and say, here, try this little package here. Take that and help you forget your problems. It's like they did with Billy Holiday and Lady Sings the Blues. It's just a one night trip. So we thought. We started messing with that drug, and we've been hooked on that shit for the last 80 years. See, there was two types of drugs when I was a kid. There was a professional drug, and there was a street drug. The professional drug was something called cocaine. That was something that the lawyers and the doctors used. You know, when they was doing the abortions, they used to have little packets of powder stacked up on cardboard. And they would use that in the professional sense. And then when the other drug came, this heroin hit the street and went to the poor people. And then the poor people started praying on poor people because I need my money to get my fix. 
But I ain't going down to Fifth Avenue downtown to rob nobody or break nobody's house. I'm going to break in right here where I live. So we start feeding off of one another. And this is the cycle that's been going around to the point where who's raising the kids? So when I used to go to their house, man, look in their house, the fathers wasn't there. If you sit back and think about it, the father's been missing for 80 years. From that one weekend, they thought that they was going, just a weekend trip. So now you hear something called, in my day, they call it welfare. Today, they call it social services. So when I used to go to my partner's house, and his mother and three other kids aside from him, she don't have no man there. She's trying to do the best she can. She might be chipping around herself a little bit. But the bottom line is, I'm there at the house, and all of a sudden, this day I hear on the door. His mother goes to the door, open the door, and this white woman standing there. And she says to the white woman, good morning. The woman brushes on by her, don't even respond to her saying good morning, brushes by her. And then she goes in. I said to my man, I said, what's she doing? He said, man, be quiet. Look, look, look. And I'm watching. And she goes right to the sofa. She look in the ashtray in the sofa. She look underneath the sofa. She take off. She go into the bedroom. She looking all up under the bed. She open the closet, look in the closet. I said, what's she looking for? And then it dawns on me. She was looking for any paraphernalia from a man. Wow. That's wow. right. Because welfare's first stipulation was that you cannot have a male figure living in that house. Wow. Other than your kids. Yep. You understand? If a male was noted to be in that house, it cuts off your welfare check. Cut it off. Yep. Okay? So the first thing was to break up the family. And then when they said, well, we're going to give you some assistance, the first thing was to continue to break the family up because the first law is no male figure in the house. So now now you sit there and you experience that, and then you go and you realize that, man, well, I got food in my cabinets. My boy ain't got no food in his cabinets. Well, I got food in my icebox. My boy don't even have ice in his icebox, much more food. Understand? There's a difference because my mother and father was together to raise our kids. We were the exception in the neighborhood because there was a lot of fathers missing in action. So now they need help. They don't know where to get help. Ain't nobody volunteering to give them no help. Then I thought about Robin Hood. I said, man, just like them trains come over in front of the Yankee Stadium every day. And they got food and they got clothes and they got stuff in there that black people need, brown people need every day. Ain't nobody giving them anything. My mother and father didn't raise me to be no thief. I wasn't built to be no thief. But I've always been the type of individual who would say, man, it's not fair. They should have everything and you have nothing. So I had no problem to go and do what I felt was the right thing to do. I wasn't worried about man's law as much as I was concerned about God's law. Mm-hmm. Huh? God gonna say you take a seed and put a seed in the ground, and that seed is supposed to be able to feed people. I control this, and I control who this goes to. So then I start hitting the freight trains, and I started running across that bridge, as you said, young lady. Mm-hmm. I run across that bridge, and I stopped one day, and I said to the guy, they used to have a little house at the end of the bridge, and he sit up there looking over the Hollow River house. Uh, Hollow 155th Street Bridge right now. And he would look out this glass. And I stopped and I said to him, I said, man, you see us coming through here? 
I said, man, one day the police gonna tell you, call you and tell you to open this bridge up. I said, if if they ask you to open it up, if you give us five minutes, he said, man, every time we come by, we'll re bring you something, we'll drop something here for you. And he looked at us and he said, he said, nah, first of all, they don't pay me nowhere enough, near enough money to sit here in this booth all day looking out at the ferry boats and read my newspaper, waiting for that phone to ring. I said to him, if you give us five minutes, he said, I can't give you five. When he did that, I kind of like dejected you. You can't give me five minutes. And I turned and walked away. He said, but I can give you three minutes. And when he said that, man, it was like a rainbow opening my soul, man. You can give me three minutes. So every time we would roll, we make sure we left him something. It was, it was just a box of just string beans or succotash. Or might have been one of the six, six transistor radios. We always left him something to show our appreciation for what he did. And then I would go back in the neighborhood and give this stuff away. And my man, I remember my partner that was with me and told me, oh, we're going to have fat pockets. And I told him, I said, man, this ain't for your pockets. I said, man, you ain't got no food in your house much more than other people. This is for people that don't have nothing. Then we started giving it out. My thing to everybody in the neighborhood was, don't tell my father. Don't tell my father. Because my father was a good father. He was a strong father. But he believed in doing what he thought was right. You know, he wouldn't have been too happy about me hitting the freight trains. Uh, I don't think in my life he'd have told me about the reason behind it was the right reason. I don't, just don't think he told me that I should have been doing that at all. Okay? So the first rule was don't tell my father, don't tell Earl Carlos what Johnny is doing. And then it was just happened to be two detectives, black, Mr. Lester and Mr. Bryan out of 32nd Precinct in New York. They got wind about the break-ins at the freight yards. They would always chase us. These Irish cops would chase us. And some of them were little fat, poorly guys, but they could roll, man. They could roll. They used to have a big belt, gun belt, big 45, 38 on it, long nose 38, all the bullets. Then they would have their nightsticks stuck down in there too. But they were running, man, and they would catch my boys all the time and have them up against the wall on 153rd Street and 7th Avenue. And I'll be in the crowd. What they do? What they do? Why you following them? <laughs> my boys look around. They be up against the wall. They look around. Oh man, he got away again. <laughs> so, but Mr. Lester and Mr. Bryan taught me a valuable lesson. They taught me that they were smarter than me, because I'm always thinking as long as they don't put hands on me, I'm good to go. And one day I wasn't home, and they went to my father's shop, and I told my father, I said. Earl, there's been some breaking at the freight yards, and you need to tell Johnny. My father stopped him. That's your job. He's over McCoon's Park right now. He said, right now, and McCoon's Park is where they built the new Yankee Stadium. That's where it is. But we used to go over there. He said, he's over there now. They came over there. They blocked, blocked the park with police cars, and they came in and looked for me. And they found me and my two boys. They told y'all go sit up against the fence. And walked me on the turn on the track, across the track on the grass area. And Mr. Brown was about 5'10, 5'11. And Mr. Brown, Mr. Lesson was 5'10, 5'11. Mr. Brown was about 6'4, 6'6, somewhere around there. He was a big red bone man, he had big hands. And Mr. Brown said, Go on, Mr. Lesson, tell him. Mr. Lesson said, Listen, 
it's been some breakers in the freight yards. We think we know who's doing it. We can't do anything to him until we catch him. And Mr. Lester, when he said that, he said, boom, we push his nose up against my nose, and we going to catch him. In other words, you better slow your roll. You better find another occupation. <laughs> so before I could digest that, Mr. Brian said to him, he said, go on, tell me the other thing. So I'm saying to myself, what's the other thing? And Mr. Lester said, yeah, you have a talent. What talent is that? He said, you're a runner. When he said I was a runner, I'd be like, <clears throat> smirked. And when I did that, Mr. Brian smacked me. He smacked me here, man. His hands landed over here. I mean, he <laughs> literally just swallowed my whole head. <laughs> Don't you ever disrespect Mr. Lester? I said, I'm not disrespecting. He said, he said I'm a runner. I said, everybody in the neighborhood run. Because back at that time was an era when a lot of women, black women, white women, Puerto Rican, didn't matter. A lot of kids were snatching pocketbooks at that time. So um, when I said everybody they would run, someone snatched my mother's purse one night, and my father, my father, my brother, they all just got upset. We was going to find a guy, and my mother says, "All right, I just need some material cones." And that dude dragged her when he snatched the purse. She went down and scratched up her leg. All I need is some material cone, and I die, and I'll be all right. My father said, "Now nah, we going to get your purse back." She said, "Oh no, I got my purse back." So when my father looked at it, he said, Bob, how you get your purse back? She said, I ran him down and got my purse back. So what I'm telling Mr. everybody in there was a runner. And he said to me, he said, no, you're special. And that's how I actually got involved in track and field. He gave me a number to the New York Pioneer Club. I called it. I went down there. And the rest was history. Wow. So let's fast forward with that. So you ended up running track, and then you ended up at San Jose State, right? Correct. My, I actually went to East Texas State first. Okay. And then when you, you went to the Olympics, you were at San Jose State, right? Yes. So talk, talk to us a little bit about that, about um, the Olympic, making the Olympic team and everything. Leading up. Well, before I talk about that, we got to talk about East Texas State. Okay. Okay. Go ahead. Then. Now, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm a young kid. Come out of Harlem. Okay. And uh, I was married my senior year in high school. Uh, and I had opportunity to get me an apartment in the project. I signed up waiting for an apartment in the project. That's all any young family want. Just give me an apartment in the project where I know I got a ceiling on my rent. I'm, I'm secure. I don't have to worry about it. But then I was running track meets in Jersey and a few other states. And some guy saw me and he called a coach at East Texas State for me to possibly consider going to school down there. So the coach called me and you know, John Carlos says it's a great opportunity for you to come down with your daughter and your wife and, and your wife and daughter they'd be able to go on the bus to the track meets with you and, and your daughter would be having little ponies and horses she could ride and this and that and I'm thinking, oh, this might be great for me to get out of the city pretty much just like you, Earl. Mm -hmm. This might be a great opportunity for me. So at the same time, when I get the scholarship to go to East Texas State, I get the letter in the mail tell me, say, congratulations, I just received the high sign that I can get one of the apartments in the project. So now, for me as a young kid, senior in high school, I got a big decision to make. Am I going to go to East Texas State or am I going to stay here and with the secure apartment that I have? Well, based on my daughter, I said, it's better for me to go to East Texas State. So when I left, I told my wife, I said, listen, 
I said, I'm going to go check it out, and I'll let you know how things go, and then I'll send for you. She said, no, nah, we're a team. We're a family. If you go, we go. I had no problem with that. You want to go? Let's do it. So we get on the plane, man. We fly down there. Now, mind you, I wasn't the greatest student and, and, and had no shame in my game about me not being the greatest student because I ain't never seen nobody do nothing educationally and become nobody of worth at that time. So when I was going to Texas, I'm thinking Texas is Texas. I ain't thinking Texas is the deep south. I'm just going to a new state, but it ain't bad as New York. And when I land in Texas, we land in Dallas Airport. And Dallas is probably about the size of two, two large trailers at that time. Them two big family trailers, double trailers, they used to call them. That was the Dallas Airport at that time. And that statue that you see in the center of Dallas Airport with that bronze statue of the Texas Rangers, that was the only statue they had in there. And I remember when I walked in and I saw the statue and I looked over to the right and the statue said, colors only. Okay? No, no, it said colors. And then the other on the other side it says whites only. Okay? No, looked at that. And then I noticed when the coach came, my name changed from John Carlos to Boy. Wow. And I was I felt real offended because I was a young dude, but I had a wife and a kid. And you calling me boy? You didn't call me boy when you was trying to recruit me. You call me boy now? And then he went and made his statement about you niggers. And I never heard the word niggers before. I heard the word nigger, but never niggers. So when he said that, I, you know, right away, I got ready to jump on the dude. And my wife told me, she said, I don't think he said that. I think he called you something else. I said, he pretty damn close, but he better be careful. <laughs> so anyway, I went on in. And, and, but I'm going to tell you, instantaneously, I felt like I made a mistake, a crucial mistake. And that mistake was that I brought my wife and daughter with me. I should have followed my own suit and said, I'm going to go check it out and then bring you. And I was never the type of individual where I would pick up the phone and call my mother and father because I'm the youngest son, call them and say, hey, I made a mistake. Send me money so we can come back home. So I said, we'll stick it out. So I get down there and now I'm really starting to understand what racism, bias, and prejudice is about how they respond to black people and how they thought black people were supposed to respond to them. How certain black people would use the metaphor Oh man, that's just the way it is. Like it's almost like they settled, they settled for what, what they was experiencing. Uh out there working on the track, and I would hear football coach say, nigga, you got holes in your hands, you can't catch the ball. You nigga, what's wrong with you niggers? Wow. And I'm listening to this, and I'm saying, nah, this ain't gonna work. So I'm 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 trying to figure out a way to, to, to hold on, but it, it just wasn't gonna work, man. So I mean, I went there, I met a guy named Terry Barnett, white fella, student. And when I met Terry, he was real nice, man. He came over to me, introduced himself, and he told me, he said, John, it's, it's going to be a lot of problems down here, man. He said, but I got your back, man. We're going to get through this. But things had gotten so bad until I was ready to pull up to leave. And I remember I, they was building a stage for the graduation, and, and, and at that time it was the same time for us to go to the conference meet. 
I'll never forget, I walk into to the training room and he got down. He wants me to do a, a 350, a 280, and then a 150 as a workout for time. But yet and still, the next day I got to get in a van because we didn't really no bus. All the bus I tell you, we, we never went on one bus. We get it in, in a station wagon where they put the flap down. And we might have to ride for like 10 hours or 15 hours or so to get to the place where this, this uh, national championship is. So I said, man, I'm not going to run all that. I'm, not, I'm just not going to do it. So get outside. And he's out there with the stopwatch. Come on now, son. You know, you my horse now. Give me a good time. This, I got to run this 350. And, man, when he shot the gun, and I took off running on that turn, and when I got to the back stretch, I started walking. I rolled down to a, to a jog, and then I just started walking. And I'm walking all the way around the track, and then I'm walking. They're building the stage for the graduation. And as I'm coming down the, the, the final stretch, he walks towards the stage, man. He reaches down. He picks up a hammer. And he's coming in with his hammer and he tell me, nigga, I'm tired of you. And, and I remember he had his son, Danny, was up on the wall. And I looked at Danny. I said, Danny, I said, man, you better jump down here and do the deal, step in here for your father. And Danny looked at me like, I don't have nothing to do with that. And when Delma Brown came to me with that hammer, I told him, I said, coach, the hammer better be like licorice. I said, because if you come to me with it, I'm going to make you eat it. So by that time, man, I was fed up. I remember I stripped down right there on the track, man, took everything off the book, I get threw it in his face, and I went and walked in the shower. And I guess he must have realized that I was really offended by this. So he come in the shower trying to apologize. I said, man, the best thing you can do is get out of there because you're going to drown in there if you stay in here. But Terry Barnett came to me, and he said to me, he said, John, he said, listen. He said, man, you know, we made a pact when you first came here. He said, man, there's no way in hell we would ever have a chance to win this championship if you leave. And I said to him, I said, but Terry, you know, that's the best thing I heard all day. And I, I, you're right. I'm a man of my word. If I said we're going to do it, we're going to do it. I said, so let's go on and do it. We went on. We won the championship. First time they ever won the championship. So I did my mission there as far as track and field was going. But it was time for me to leave. When I left, I went back to New York. And then I had an opportunity to run into Dr. King in my transition from East Texas State to San Jose State. Because in, in 1965, when I went to the Nationals for the first time in California, I left San Jose and went down to San Jose to see what the Track Plus program was all about. See, because in 1965, 66, I was in uh, East Texas State. So now I'm going back to uh, to San Diego to run at the Nationals. Well, let me go down to San Jose. I went down to San Jose and checked it out, and I got a chance to meet this big brother down there uh, by the name of Professor Harry Edwards. His name was Harry Edwards at the time. And when I left East Texas State, Harry just happened to find out that I was back home, and he called me at my mother's house. I'm still puzzled as to how the hell he got my mother's number to this day. <laughs> in any case, he called me and he told me that they was having a very important meeting and the people asked him to invite me to the meeting and invited me. And I explained to my mother they wanted me to go and blah, blah, blah. blah. And 
She said, well, son, if they invite you, you need to be there. I was, and the reason I'm asking my mom, because I was in the kitchen actually helping her paint the kitchen. She said, I can wait. So I go down to the hotel. A hotel Americana was across the street from the old Madison Square Garden. I get in there, man. And, you know, I'm a young thug. And I'm looking around when I get in the lobby because all my time in New York as a kid, this was maybe the second time I'd ever gone into a hotel. I ain't never had no need to go into no hotels downtown. And I go in there, man, and I'm sitting down on the sofa, and I'm looking around, and I'm saying, man, I can steal that chandelier over there. <laughs> off the wall. Man, I can take this sofa. Because I'm thinking all of these things, man, are fine things. My mother liked fine things. So I'm thinking I can get all this from my mom. But then I snapped out of it, and I went to the desk, and I asked for SCLC. And I didn't have a clue what SCLC was. And I go up there, man, and I see all these luminaries, people that I saw on TV, people that my mother and father admired. But at the same time, when I'm seeing some of them, I'm like getting a little nervous. And I don't think it's too many days in my life where I can say that I was nervous, but I was nervous that particular time. And I guess I was there maybe... 20 minutes or so, 25 minutes, a door open in there, man, and Dr. King walks out into the room. And you're talking about nervous. Man, I felt like I was petrified wood. All I could think of, my mother, my mother, my mother needed to be a bug on my on a pillow. She needed to be a bug in my pocket. She needed to be here right now. Because my mother idolized Dr. King. She always thought that God sent Dr. King here to save this world. Now, he in the room with her son, so it was a hell of an experience for me to be there, to accept, to absorb what was happening in that meeting, why he was coming out to support the Olympic boycott, the things that he told me about life and death. Uh, and then to have all that in my psyche when I went to Mexico City, because it's something that he told me that stood out. I had two questions for him. I said, Dr. King, let me ask you the first question. Uh, did you ever play any sports? And he said to me, he said, no, I can't shoot pool. And I, yeah, at that time, I went into myself, and I probably still do today, whether pool was a game or whether pool is a sport. <laughs> a game, I don't know. And he said, I can't shoot pool. I said to myself, well, Dr. King, why would you come out and support the Olympic boycott? And he said to me, he said, that's a very good question. He said, imagine you get in a big lake. He said, you were out to the center of the lake. He said, when you get out there, you bring the oars in, lay them down, and then you pick up a rock and put it in your lap until everything is still and serene. He said, then you take that rock and throw it overboard. What happens? I said, it creates vibrations. He said, yes, it creates waves. He said, that rock is the Olympic boycott. He said, everything in that lake knows something's amiss. He said, everything on the shores of that lake knows something's amiss. You got the attention of the world, and you didn't have to kill, maim, or rock nobody to, to get their attention. I said, man, that was profound what he said. I was like, give me a gold nugget, man, to put in my basket. And I was just so blown away with that. I forgot that I had a second question. He had to remind me. <laughs> I, him, I, mean, I mean, I wasn't looking forward to the answer that he gave me, but it was so profound what he said. And I said, oh, yeah, Dr. King. I said, you said that they sent you a letter and told you they had a bullet with your name on it. Why would you go back to Memphis? And he told me, he said, that's a better question. 
He said, John, I have to go back and stand for those that can't stand for themselves. And John, I have to go back and stand for those that won't stand for themselves. He says, all ethnic groups back there. He said, many blacks. He said, many poor whites. He said, but they're not getting a fair shake in life. Somebody's got to go there and stand with them. I said, but Dr. King, they threaten your life. And he looks at me, and I'll never forget, I had horn rim glasses on at that time. I remember putting them glasses down. I wanted to look from my eyeball to his eyeball where they got nothing in between. And you know, you can pretty much demise what I'm thinking about. You have any idea what I'm thinking? I'm thinking this guy's got to be scared to death. So I'm looking for a shaky. Mm -hmm. But he was solid as a rock, man. Solid as a rock. And he says to me, he says, John, he said, I've done many things in my life in the flesh, and I'm revered around the world. He said, that's nothing as to how I will be revered in the spirit. He said, they can't stop what I've done. You understand? He said, if they take my life, it will be greater than I ever was in the flesh. Wow. And that's exactly what happened to that man. Yes. You know what he did before he died, but after he died, it was just like just like that giant mushroom that just keeps opening wider and getting taller every day. Yes. And those two things that he gave me pretty much gave me the vision, the paradigm, the courage to pull that statement together that was done in Mexico City. So let's, let's go ahead, Toy. I just want to, I know we skipped over it, but I am so intrigued with the relationship that you have with Malcolm X as well. Oh, um, yeah. Could you please just, I, could you please oh, yeah, yeah. know the relationship well, you have with Malcolm X? Well, what happened with, with Malcolm was this. I was about maybe 13 years old, and uh, I heard this guy on the radio speaking, and he was speaking, I mean, he was like, just dropping poetry and it was just strong poetry dropping poetry of blackness now he sounded like my father but my father talked to us in the house like that this man was on the radio the public radio talking like this daddy who is that he said oh it's a young minister coming in to take over the mosque on 116th street he said his name is malcolm something the other i said okay i'll listen to him so the next time he come on the radio I'm making sure I listen to him again. So I think it was the second or third time I said to my father, I said, Daddy, I got to go down there. I got to go, I got to go see this. I got to go hear him. And my father's concerned. He said, nah, son, you don't need to go down there because you need to go down and get yourself in trouble. And I'm saying, Daddy, I got to go down there. And in other words, if you don't give me permission, I got to go, I'm gone. And I guess he realized, and he said, okay, son, you can go down there. I don't want you getting in no trouble. I said, no, Papa, I won't get in no trouble. And I'll never forget when I walked into the place, they were setting up the area for people to sit, and they used to have those wooden folding chairs. And they were laying the folding chairs out, and it was two guys, older brothers, sitting up front. And I remember going to them, and I said to them, I said, uh, man, who is Malcolm X? They said, there he is there. I looked at him, I told him, I said, man, that's not Malcolm X. Yeah, it's Malcolm X. No guy, the old guy, the, the other guy about young guys always think they know. And I'm talking, I said, no, nah, that's Malcolm X. He said, no, it's 
It is Malcolm X. And I guess this is pretty much like how I felt about Adam Clayton Powell. That's a white man. But with Malcolm X, I knew he was black, but he was too light-skinned to be blowing as black as he was blowing. <laughs> that kind of me out. I said, man, that can't be him. Now, that's Malcolm X. The second he went up to the podium, man, he ain't said but two words, and I knew it was him off from the top. So I'm there like a fly on the wall every time he spoke. I guess about the third time I went to him, I said, Mr. X, is it possible I can go with you from one location to the next? And he looked at me and he said to me, he said, go with one location to the next for what? I said, I have questions I need to ask and I can't find answers. I'm looking for answers. And he looked at me, he smiled. I think he liked what I was, what I had said. And he smiled and he said to me, he said, you can go with me if you can keep up. And when he said, you can go with me if you can keep up, it was, it was almost like, man, like God, he put me in this bubble. And, and I'm seeing these things happening in my life. And everything that's happening, it's like I raised my foot up before I could put my foot down. He didn't put more concrete under it. That's oh. his phone. That's his phone. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You got to have the dogs, man. So anyway, the reason I was saying that is because my brothers, both of my brothers were taller than me. And we used to go down to Central Park, and, and a lot of times we spent up our money, so we had money to get on the bus. So we would walk back from Central Park all the way back up to our, where we lived on Lenox Avenue. So being my brothers taller, they had giant steps, as you might say, so I would have to run to keep up with them. So when Malcolm said, if you can keep up, it was like a slam dunk for me. I said, sure, okay, because I know I like to just jog behind him and, and, and talk to him. And we got to be pretty, I would say pretty close. And, well, I, I'm, I'm going to put it like this. It got close enough to me that when they took his life, man, it affected me for the better part of 20 years. Wow. When, when Malcolm went to the Audubon Ballroom that day, the night before, the day before I told him that uh, I wasn't going to be there because I was trying to get a New York driver's license. And we was going to take the test that Monday. So we were going to go, me and two of my partners from my school, we was going to go and drive up to Bear Mountain. I don't know whether you ever heard of Bear Mountain. Well, Bear Mountain is like a big area, recreational area. They got swimming pool and beach and all kind of stuff for people in the city. They either drive there or they can go. We used to have a boat ride and go up there. Mother's Day boat ride would take us up there every year. But this particular day, we're going to drive just doing a road test. And by the time we passed West Point on the way, it came across the radio and said that Malcolm was shot. By the time we got back down to the hospital, everybody was milling around the street, man, crying. And you knew he was, he was gone. And uh, it was surreal for me because it was right across the street from there was where I used to run every weekend. You know, all our track meets were right there at the armory, across uh, the street from the hospital. Audubon was across me from, from like a triangle. So uh, for a long time, man, I felt like if I'd have been in the Audubon ballroom, I could have done something to try and prevent him from, you know, them taking his life. Uh, and I still, you know, in my feelings right now, I still feel bad about that. Uh, that if I was there, I could have did something. I've always been pretty witty and pretty quick. And it just, it hurts. 
It hurts. It's the Dear Black Folks Podcast.